0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. A bit later in the hour, we'll talk about good news for reducing methane emissions from cows. But first, many parents sighed in relief earlier this week when the CDC officially signed off on a recommendation for recommending the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for children age 5 to 11. The FDA authorized the shot after finding evidence in the excuse me in the clinical trial data that the shot was both safe and highly effective in preventing severe diseases and again many parents had been chained, had been champing at the bit to get their younger children vaccinated but where does that leave parents who might still have reservations are you among them here to talk through the safety the efficacy And the wise is virologist Angela Rasmussen for another edition of Fact Check My Feed. Let me formally introduce her. Dr. Angela Rasmussen is a research scientist at VDAC uh, Intervac at the University of Saskatchewan's Vaccine Research Institute in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Welcome back, Angela.
2: Thanks for having me, Ira. It's great to be here.
0: And it's a special day today because we want uh, your COVID-19 suggestions. If you're listening, yes, you can call us in the studio, 844-724-8255, 844 SciTalk. Operators are standing by, as they used to say. Well, Angela, nice to have you back. Let's talk. uh, I already mentioned the big news this week is vaccines for younger children. And we want to talk about that. But but first, before we get to vaccinations, I want to talk about a story that just broke today about a second antiviral pill. Pfizer says it has a pill that is very effective in combating the virus in people who are infected, cutting hospitalizations and deaths by almost 90% in people in high-risk groups. That must be good news, Angela.
2: It's terrific news. I mean, every time uh, we we develop a new countermeasure that we can deploy and have as an option in our back pocket, um, that, that's a real win for for everybody's health and for ending this pandemic. I think what what is important to keep in mind is that this isn't a substitute for vaccination, but for those people who haven't been vaccinated or don't respond well to vaccines, Uh, or get a breakthrough infection in those rare cases where people get severely ill, Um, it's wonderful to have a treatment like this that also is an oral treatment. So people don't have to go get infused with it. They can just get a prescription and take it from home. Uh, This is a real game changer in terms of our ability to treat people who have COVID-19.
0: So even if you get a breakthrough infection, it might be you just go take a pill?
2: That's exactly right, um, and what's nice about this is that we know from a- all the other antivirals that are out there, remdesivir uh, as well as the drug that's been developed by Merck, mol- uh, molnuprevir, I still have a trouble saying that, <laughs> um, that we know that, and, and the monoclonal antibodies, we know that early treatment is really, really much more effective. And prior to uh, the drugs from Merck and Pfizer being developed, the only antiviral treatments that were available are treatments that have to be given by intravenous infusion, which means that typically you can't treat as many people and you can't treat them as early in the course of their infection because a lot of times you're waiting to see who really needs the treatment. With a pill, um, that's a lot easier. People can administer it themselves. There won't be as many supply issues. So you can give it to everybody essentially who's diagnosed with SARS coronavirus 2 infection they can take it at home and then we don't have to wait and see who's actually going to get very sick and need the treatment because it will keep people from getting very, very sick.
0: That's great news. Let's move on to our main story this hour about vaccinations. I'm sure many folks have questions about the safety of vaccines for younger people. We have lots of phone calls already, people wanting to ask about vaccinations. So tell us about the process that the FDA and the CDC followed to decide Pfizer's mRNA vaccine was a good fit for kids under 12.
2: Right. So this is a, a great question because a lot of people have been wondering about it. They've been wondering why you know, we, we approved vaccines for 12 to 15 year olds uh, a while back. And now we've approved it for five to 11 year olds. And some people want to know when we're going to be approving it for kids even younger than that. And that's because every time you approve a vaccine for uh, younger age groups, you have to do a clinical trial. And the clinical trials in this case were done in what's called an age de-escalation trial uh, scheme. So that basically means that you start with the older kids uh, you enroll them in the trial you make sure that they're not seeing any severe adverse events that weren't seen in adults um, and then you progressively enroll younger and younger age groups Um, so that's why the the clinical trial that was enrolling the 5 to 11 year olds um, finished up about a month and a half ago and that data was then submitted to the, the fda for consideration and approval and then of course the ACIP, the advisory committee for immunization practices also examined that data and made recommendations. And now that that vaccine is authorized and available for five to eleven year olds. that That trial enrolled about three thousand or a little over three thousand kids. Um, it was primarily looking at both safety and efficacy. But one of the challenges in doing clinical trials in groups like those five to eleven year olds who are low risk, for developing uh, symptomatic COVID-19 is that it is very difficult to look at efficacy the same way that you would do that in an adult group mm-hmm. where people are at high risk. So they weren't necessarily looking as much at COVID infections, although there were some in the trial and it, it certainly did appear that the vaccines reduced symptomatic COVID-19 But they're also going to be looking at the immune responses that it provokes as well as the um, adverse event profile and safety profile and what they found was that yes the vaccine was efficacious at preventing symptomatic COVID-19 in kids it also induced robust immune responses that are thought to be protective similar to the adults who uh, developed these immune responses such as neutralizing antibodies um so we expect that it will be very effective at population scale and importantly i think a lot of parents want to hear this there weren't uh severe adverse events reported um that said though we we really don't have the ability to identify rare events even in much larger clinical trials um so the the one in a million one in five hundred thousand type events are normally uh during the vaccine clinical trial process for any age group identified Mm -hmm. usually once those vaccines come out onto the market but in general um parents i think should be relieved that this virus has or this vaccine sorry not the virus the vaccine has excellent uh an excellent safety and efficacy profile in those five to 11 year olds so people can feel confident getting it
0: we have some excellent questions from excellent listeners too so let's see if we can get them on first let's go to uh, uh belinda in arizona hi belinda
1: hello
0: hi there go ahead
1: So, I have an 11-year-old boy, actually two of them twins, and I was concerned a little bit about the reaction that some of the 17-year-olds had around um, heart pain, and I wanted to know if any of the trial kiddos had that, um, and if so, what is the the rate, I guess, and then what other specific side effects um, had you seen in the trial?
0: Okay, thanks for that question. Uh, Angela?
2: Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question, and it's one I've been getting a lot. Um, people are certainly worried about the risk of myocarditis uh, that, that could be in younger kids since it does seem to be associated with the older, younger uh, people, and especially younger boys um, or men, uh, have had this myocarditis, and the good news there is that nothing was seen in the trial because it's an extremely rare adverse event. Um, So it it really doesn't happen, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of these doses have been given to 12 year olds and up. Um, There've only been a a few hundred cases of this myocarditis. And what Mm. people should really think about too is that these cases of myocarditis, even when they've resulted in hospitalization, have been very treatable. Um, So these are are transient, self-limiting cases of myocarditis when they do happen. And then when they do, they are extremely rare. But that said, as I was mentioning before, this trial was too small to actually detect those cases because they happen at such a, a infrequent rate. Yeah. So it is something that that we should yeah. be looking yeah. out for and we should be uh, making sure that that we do have a good understanding of what that rate is in the real world.
0: All right. Let me give, get a phone call or two before the break. Let's go to Erin uh, in Clearwater, Kansas. Hi. Hi, Erin.
1: Hi. <laughs> it's wonderful to speak with you.
0: Nice to have you. Go ahead.
1: Thank you. I, too, have twin boys, which is a fun coincidence. I have uh, two eight-year-olds and a five-year-old, and we were waiting on pins and needles for the vaccine to come out, and last Tuesday they got COVID. So I'm wondering what your recommendation is for when they can get the vaccine or when it's safe or wise to get all my three kiddos the vaccine now that they have had COVID.
0: Good question. Thanks for calling.
3: Thank you.
2: That's a fantastic question, Erin. And I think a lot of people have really been wondering this. If I, you know, if my kids had COVID, why do they even need to get the vaccine? Um, And the the answer to that is that kids don't have the same response to having COVID all the time as far as their immune system is concerned. So there's a lot of variability. It doesn't sound like you need to be convinced to, to actually get your kids vaccinated Um, once they've recovered, and I hope that their recovery is very swift and that they don't have a lot of lasting problems from it. But in general, you want to make sure that you've waited a while uh, after their recovery to get a vaccine. And the reason for that is that when they were infected, your immune system will still respond to SARS coronavirus too. It will mount immune responses, and then it will take a little bit of time to settle down. When they get their first vaccine shot, uh, the, the immune system is basically gonna say, Oh, I remember you, SARS coronavirus 2 spike, um, and respond accordingly. That will help lock in those really potent uh, protective, neutralizing antibody responses that hopefully will last for a long time. So I would ultimately consult your kid's uh, pediatrician or provider on what the actual length of time should be, but it should be at minimum probably two to three weeks um, and potentially even a little bit longer after they've recovered before you go and sign them up for their first shot. But I'm delighted to hear that you're going to.
0: It's amazing how many people are calling about kids, the vaccine, now that they can get it. It seems like there's great interest in it.
2: Which is really wonderful to hear. Um, I've seen lines uh, stretching down the down the block uh, in a number of places in the U.S. with people just really, really enthusiastic about getting their kids vaccinated, and that's wonderful to see.
0: Well, we're going to have to take a break. Let me give out the number again. Our number is eight four four seven two four eight two five five. If you'd like to call to talk with Dr. Angela Rasmussen about kids and vaccines, we have lots of callers on the line, but we have lots of room for more callers. So uh, we're happy to see our first day back in in the studio with Science Friday, that our listeners are still there and they are all interested in still calling in. We're happy to have you. 844-724-8255. More with Dr. Angela Rasmussen after this break. Stay with us This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato, In case you're just joining us, we're doing Fact Check My Feed. Yeah, well, your, your feed about the virus and the vaccines with Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a research scientist at Vito InterVac, That's at the University of Saskatchewan. And our number, 844-724-8255. So many people, so many calls. Let's see where uh, – let, let's, go, let's go to this line. Let's go to Pittsburgh. Chris, hi in Pittsburgh. Welcome to Science Friday.
1: Hi. Thank you. Um, I, I understand that the mRNA vaccine um, causes your body to produce the spike protein and that it can pass through the blood-brain barrier and go into the ovaries. Does anybody know what the long-term effects of that uh, would, will be? Thank
2: yeah, that, that is a great question, Chris. Um, and I would say that for the most part, uh, we don't know the long-term effects of that. But these vaccines have been given to women. Uh, now for, for, for people who can get pregnant, people with ovaries, for over a year, and we have seen no impacts on reproductive health during that time. That to me suggests that the long-term impact of uh, potential entry of the spike protein into the ovaries is really incidental and that there's no ill health effects.
0: Let's go to Tanya in uh, Colorado. Hi, Tanya.
1: Hi, how are you today? Fine, how are you? I'm good. Um, I just wanted to ask a question. I'm actually a pediatrician and have been for the past 25 years and have given um, probably thousands of vaccinations. And what concerns me about what um, your guest is um, suggesting is that children do not have the same uh, immune response um, that, that adults have to the COVID vaccine. And as as much as I'd like to believe that, as a physician, I'd like to understand where that information came from, since since we're not we haven't been giving vaccines to children, and how did how was it determined um, that children do not have the same ability to mount a, a satisfactory immune response um, as they do to the multitude of vaccinations that they're given as children. And as an older adult, I can tell you that I still have immunity to the measles, mumps, and rubella. Um, so that's my question: is where is this, where is this data coming from, um, and how are they obtaining it to make this uh, statement?
0: All right, thanks for your question, Angela.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to clarify because actually, that's not what I'm saying at all. I think what I was, what may have been misunderstood, was when I said that because in the clinical trial. Um, it's really much more difficult to assess efficacy in a population that's low risk of developing symptomatic disease, which is the endpoint for that trial. Um, To to actually do that based on COVID cases, you have to look at immune responses. And in this case, they were looking specifically at neutralizing antibody responses and Th1 responses. And what they found was that vaccinated kids in this age group had very similar responses to adults. So it actually, um, that's that's really the opposite of, I think, what you understood me to say, is that these vaccines are actually provoking very similar responses to what would be provoked in adults. And they probably need a lower dose because actually, as you pointed out too, um, immune uh, immune protection and robust immunity re- uh, declines with age. So these kids have um, really potent, very young, healthy immune systems, and they're responding to this virus by generating neutralizing antibodies that effectively render the virus non-infectious uh, to the same levels are actually even a little greater than adults do. Mm-hmm.
0: Twitter, a Twitter question from John who asks, what about children under five? Why is nobody talking about when they will be able to receive a vaccine asking for my two-year-old son?
2: Well, people are definitely talking about this and I um, have the same question for my own uh, two-year-old, almost three-year-old niece. Um, and the, the correct answer to this is that we don't really know, but it'll probably be sometime early next year. Because as I mentioned, uh, this is an HD escalation trial. So the last groups uh, to, to be fully enrolled in the trial and tested and monitored um, over the trial period are gonna be those younger groups of kids. So as soon as we can get enough kids enrolled in the trial and, and get enough data from them to uh, provide the FDA with enough data for them to make an evaluation, um, that will happen, and I think that probably a realistic timescale is January or February of 2022.
0: So speaking of data, what, what goes into figuring out the dosage level for vaccines when kids are involved?
2: So this is this is also a complicated question that is a little bit different, uh, given the expedited clinical trial process. Um, and usually the, the clinical one of the reasons the clinical trial process takes so long is that there is a fair amount of dose optimization that occurs during that trial for all different age groups. Um, in this case, we just wanted we needed to get vaccines out onto the market um, and into people's arms as quickly as possible. So it was really relying on uh, preclinical work and work from the early phase one, phase two clinical trials uh, to decide these doses. GIVEN THAT uh, IT DOES APPEAR THAT DOSE IS SOMEWHAT ASSOCIATED WITH SEVERE ADVERSE EVENTS. AND GIVEN THAT THERE HAS BEEN THIS OBSERVED, ALTHOUGH RARE, RISK OF MYOCARDITIS, A DECISION WAS MADE TO to USE A LOWER DOSE FOR THESE YOUNGER KIDS. ALSO BECAUSE, AS I WAS MENTIONING FOR THE PRIOR CALLER, um, THESE KIDS DO HAVE REALLY ROBUST IMMUNE immune SYSTEMS THAT RESPOND VERY WELL. Um, SO they, THEY MAY NOT NEED A LARGER DOSE, THE SAME DOSE THAT OLDER PEOPLE DO NEED.
0: All right. Let's, still lots more questions on the phone. Let's let's uh, let me close my eyes and just throw a, a dart here. Let's let's go to uh, James in Kentucky. Hi, James. Uh, Hi. Go ahead. Hello, IRA. Uh, my daughter is eight years old. Uh, we've had her. She's had the flu
4: vaccine several years ago, and she had an adverse reaction to that. How does that predict with her taking the COVID vaccine? All right. Thank you. That's
2: a great question, James, Um, and this is one of those where I unfortunately have to cop out and tell you to talk to your your pediatrician for your daughter, um, because it really depends on what type of severe adverse event that was what type of flu vaccine she had it to Um, so many flu vaccines are grown in eggs. That's not an issue with these uh, vaccines, but for some people who are allergic to eggs or who have an issue with tolerating uh, egg proteins. They can't take um, those those egg derived flu vaccines if it's something like that then the covid vaccine may be no problem if it was something more serious like anaphylactic shock uh, to vaccines in general um, that would probably recommend her against her Mm. getting vaccinated so this is really something i would encourage all parents if you have any concerns about your child's vaccination history to, to talk with your provider prior to getting them vaccinated because you definitely don't want to be giving a vaccine to somebody who is going to have a severe adverse event because of it.
0: Let's go to Cincinnati. Emily in Cincinnati. Hi, welcome to Science Friday.
1: Hi, thank you. Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, I'm calling as the mother of a 17-year-old in a few months who has type 1 diabetes, who has had two Pfizer um, vaccinations. The second one was in April. And so my question is about boosting the kids who are Fully vaccinated and, and moving beyond that six month um, window that we hear is so important, and for especially with with a child with an autoimmune disorder, um, waiting until July next summer is going to be a long wait. Yeah.
0: So what, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Emily. So, uh, what what do you think about that?
1: So, again,
2: this is going to be a situation for the caller's son specifically to talk to their provider Mm. about it. But in general, I would say that boosters are not harmful. Um, Boosters uh, are really an issue in terms of vaccine supply. Um, The reason why we're not recommending boosters for everybody right now is because we actually still have quite a few unvaccinated people. Uh, believe it or not, who, who need to get those vaccines as well. But for somebody with type 1 diabetes of any age, that is a risk factor for severe COVID. I would say that person is certainly eligible for a booster shot and uh, should, should be able to get one.
0: I want to break away from our main topic of discussion to talk about one thing uh, that is really fascinating and maybe alarming uh, story this week, something I think your research connects to, and that is deer in Iowa that seem to be getting COVID-19 from us and transmitting it to each other. And in one study, almost 80% of deer, 80% were infected. What What's going on there, Angela?
2: Yeah, so I'm really glad you asked about this, Ira, because it does indeed uh, coincide with my work. I'm um, leading a project within the Coronavirus Variants Rapid Response Network, which is a Canadian research network here. Um, Looking into this, and really what that points to is that there is significant risk for what we call spillback. Um, So spillover is when a virus that's circulating in wild animals spills over zoonotically to the human population. This is where the virus has spilled back into a population of animals. Um, And we've already seen spillback occurring in other species, um, most notably in Denmark and the Netherlands, Uh, this occurred with minks we also see it happening with uh, big cats in zoos and all of these zoo animals that we've heard about getting infected dogs and cats as well companion animals so spillback is a real risk not not necessarily to those deer I, i haven't seen anything at least that suggests that this is wiping out the deer but it is a risk when you have animals that are in frequent contact with people as deer are and live in in very populated areas that the virus starts spreading in the deer, potentially new deer-specific variants can emerge um, that could also potentially infect humans. And that could that could be a real problem, both in terms of vaccine efficacy uh, as well as potentially it could be causing more severe disease uh, in humans or have at least unpredictable properties. Um, now, this isn't something that people should lay awake thinking about, or the pandemic's never going to end. We've known this is a risk for a long time. But I think more than anything, this should be a wake-up call that we really do need to understand that we're not the only species affected here, and really controlling COVID is much more than just controlling it in the human population. We also need to be surveilling wildlife and uh, and looking for animal reservoirs before they do become a problem in terms of uh, spillback, creating new animal reservoirs for this virus.
0: Yeah, no, that's what my next question was: that the spillback and the deer as reservoir. Uh, The big question is whether they'd be able to transmit the virus back to us. That's what people probably are most worried about.
2: I think so. I mean, I think that they should be because of the way that we would interact with deer. And I think there's been a lot of confusion about this because people have said, well, deer live outside. I thought this was, you know, transmitted by aerosols. Yes, that's true among people, but it may be different with deer. Um, And so the way that we interact with those animals is going to be really important Uh, for example, is a hunter who comes into contact with a deer um, that they have, you know, that they're preparing uh, as as wild game, um, is that going to put them at increased risk? Uh, Are people just encountering deer in the wild um, going to increase their risk? Is activities activities like feeding deer, um, petting deer, if they'll let you, uh, and some deer will, um, a lot of them are afraid of people, but you know, we, we need to think about how we interact with these animals and interact with the natural world to really better understand the risk of cross species transmission. And if not deer, you know, there are a number of other species. This virus is a very generalist virus. Um, this virus has infected many, many cats. And we all know that when we have pet animals, it actually can infect dogs too. Um, a lot of times with our pets, we're we're very affectionate. We touch them a lot. We let them lick us. We, you know, give them kisses. Uh, you know, these, these are all activities that potentially could put people at risk. So we really do need to be figuring out which animals are getting infected, um, identifying when they, they are infected and potentially treating them or developing vaccines for them. Um, because there, there mm. is significant risk whenever we interact with wild animals that there could be cross-species transmission.
0: Okay, it's good, good news to hear that we're following them or should be following them. Myra um, Flato, this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking with Dr. Angela Rasmussen, our number, 844-724-8255. Let's see if we can get a few more calls in before the break. Let's uh, go to Jake in Kansas. Hi, Jake. How are you? Jake, are you there? Hey. Hey. Good afternoon, guys. Hey, I appreciate you taking my call. Go ahead. So I have an 11 year old daughter who's getting her HPV shot next Tuesday. Uh, we just scheduled her uh, COVID shot for Friday.
1: I I know there's no interactions with the flu shot, but has there been anything with uh with anything with the, any of the other shots?
0: Hey, HPV and other shots, Angela.
2: Not not that I'm aware of. And generally, vaccines don't interact with each other at all. And the reason for that, I mean, this is why kids tend to get a lot of vaccines, especially when they're really young and they're just getting their childhood immunizations. That's why it's not a problem to immunize them against many things at once. The immune system responds to each vaccine very specifically. Um, So you're not gonna have a lot of crosstalk or any crosstalk really between a flu vaccine and a SARS-2 vaccine or an HPV vaccine and a SARS-Coronavirus-2 vaccine. And uh, even if you did, probably the only impact would be that it would boost immunity to both of those vaccines. So you can rest assured um, that you're definitely doing the right thing uh, in immunizing your daughter against HPV. There was just a huge study that came out that showed that it has dramatically cut the incidence of cervical cancer. Um, so, you know, that's wonderful. And mm-hmm. protecting her against SARS coronavirus, too, is wonderful as well. Rest assured, you're doing the right thing.
0: I, I, let me see if I can get this last question in quickly, I, because we know the holidays are coming up and kids who get vaccinated right now won't be fully vaccinated by that time. Right. That Thanksgiving's going to roll around. There are still kids under five and their families are thinking about it. Are this year's holidays any different in terms of safety from last year's?
2: I think they are because. For one thing, we have a lot more adults who are vaccinated. Um, and I think that, you know, depending on the type of holiday gathering you're going to have, there are measures that you can put in place to make it safer for everybody, uh, including unvaccinated or partially vaccinated kids. One of those things is to limit the size of the gathering or to limit it only to relatives that you know are adults who or older kids who have been vaccinated fully already another thing that people could start implementing and they're not yet available as widely as they should be they're not going to be within everybody's uh pricing range but applying rapid tests uh, is something that that you can do as well before your thanksgiving gathering to make sure that everybody who's coming there is not going to be infected or contagious Uh, with sars coronavirus too so i think we have more tools than we had last year i don't think there needs to be a blanket ban on holiday get-togethers even if there's a couple partially vaccinated kids around
0: if you're a grandparent of a very young child uh, uh, and you still feel uncomfortable about gathering this year you say still don't go if you don't feel comfortable being there
2: i mean i think that that applies anytime if you don't feel comfortable or the boundaries that are being set for a particular gathering you're not comfortable with, uh, then, then don't go. Um, but really last year, I, I didn't get together with my family, even though they lived across town for both Thanksgiving and Christmas. And this year I will be traveling back uh, for Thanksgiving, even though I have this unvaccinated two-year-old niece, because all of the adults are vaccinated and all of the older adults have gotten booster shots.
0: So, so make a wise decision, but, uh, you know, think about it and it's, it's safer this year than last year.
2: It's safer this year than last year, and especially think about the different layers of protection that you can put in place. We're going to do rapid tests if we can get those, too. All
0: right. We've run out of time, and as always, thank you for taking time to be with us today, Dr. Angela Rasmussen, research scientist at Vito InterVac, the University of Saskatchewan's Vaccine Research Institute in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Thank you, Angela. It's always a pleasure to have you.
2: My pleasure, Iron. it's so good to be back on with you live.
0: Thank you. We have to take a break, and when we come back, it's a big milestone in making cows, cows greener. Think about it. It has to do with what they burp. We'll, we'll talk about the whole thing. It's, it's a follow-up we talked about earlier. We're going to see how it's working out. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this short break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Earlier this year, we brought you a story about how feeding cows seaweed Yes, seaweed, might be a secret to lowering methane emissions. You see, cows are notorious for releasing gas, methane, and they're a large contributor to global warming. Early research showed giving cows just a little bit of seaweed in their diets could reduce that amount of methane. Well, now we've got new news from this research team, and it turns out this is working better than expected. Joining me now is sci-fi producer Kathleen Davis, who first brought us that story. Hi, Kathleen. Hey there, Ira. All right. Now tell me about this update.
5: When we covered the story in April, this experiment with seaweed and cows was really promising, but it was only proven to work in a very controlled university setting. And as you may know, Ira, testing something like this in real life, well, there's, there's a lot that can go wrong.
0: Oh, yeah. Sure makes sense to me.
5: And we are talking about a very specific kind of red seaweed being fed to cows it is called asparagopsis
0: asparo what you know it sounds like something i'd sprinkle balsamic vinegar on
5: (laughs) yes and a couple big reminders if you don't remember this first story that we talked about this these cows got a little bit of seaweed powder in their feed every day The cows don't seem to notice that it's there, and it doesn't affect the taste of the dairy products made from cow's milk.
0: So no seaweed-flavored ice cream then, huh?
5: No, no, just normal-tasting milk and meat. This trial that we're talking about today was the first to happen on a real working dairy farm. And guess what? Okay, I'll bite. What? The cows who ate a tiny bit of seaweed powder released half the methane that they normally would in their burps. For some cows, it was over 85% reduction.
0: Wow, that that is really good news, isn't it?
5: Yeah, it sure is. And we love to follow cool research here at Science Friday, especially when it's something really important like this. So I caught up with three of the key players involved in this update. Dr. Brianna Roque is an animal science consultant at Blue Ocean Barns in Townsville, Queensland, Australia. Joan Salwin is CEO of Blue Ocean Barns in Kailua-Kona, Hawaii. And Albert Strauss is founder and CEO of Strauss Family Creamery in Marshall, California. And I started by asking Brianna, the research brains of the operation, how they can actually measure that methane release.
3: Yeah, there's quite a few different measurement techniques. What I've used as a graduate student and now as a consultant is um, what's called a green feed machine. Um, And what this machine does is it's feed incentivized, right? So the cow voluntarily enters. When a little bit of feed is dropped down, she can put her head in, eat. We like to keep drops, you know, flowing between three to five minutes to keep that cow in there um, as long as possible. And as she's eating this bait feed, she's also erectating or burping up greenhouse gases. So carbon dioxide and methane is usually what we focus on one of the downsides and what what we've been able to be flexible with is those are spot, what's called spot measurements. So you get it only at that point in time. Um, So what we do is we allow the cows to come in multiple times per day, also every single day. Um, And then what we do is we average those methane emissions over the course of a 24-hour period, as well as with this project, we used a 10-day experimental period. This way, we're not over or underestimating um, any type of greenhouse gases that are coming from each cow.
5: Now, Joan, you are behind the company that produces this seaweed powder that was used by Albert's cows in this study. And one thing that I thought was really interesting is that you're sort of marketing this for use in dairy cows, not in cattle, not not beef cows. I mean,
6: why why is this? Thanks for asking. Our product is equally effective in both dairy and beef cattle. The dairy industry has a, a great opportunity in that dairy cattle have to be milked at least twice per day. And so they're handled a lot and they are they're used to human beings being around them and they're in some ways uh, more gentle and and more trainable to get into the green feed machine. They're a lot of fun, they're beautiful and so Dairy cattle have been a really good place for us to start. It's also not well known that uh, per head, a dairy cow actually does burp more methane than, you know, a big old Texas longhorn or whatever. And it's because that she's eating a great deal of feed in order to provide nutritious milk for the rest of us. So the per head emissions per cow is pretty compelling. And so a lot of the early work that we've done has been with dairy cattle That being said, Brianna also conducted a beautiful trial using uh, beef steers for a long period of time, 147 days. So this has easily been used and has great utility in both both kinds of cattle.
5: Now, I want to take up to this topic of uh, scalability. Just this week, President Biden announced a plan to tackle methane emissions across various industries, including the agricultural sector. Now, the USDA, according to this plan, has been Ordered to work with farmers to identify voluntary approaches to combat this issue. I mean, Joan, do you think that asparagopsis could play a role
6: here? There's no question that asparagopsis can play a huge role here. One of the things that is so beautiful about this additive is that it works in the cow the day she eats it. So, the very first day that a cow is on, the, on, a, on a diet that includes this red seaweed, she's on her way. So that's very exciting because a lot of the things that are going to need to be done to reduce methane emissions are going to take a lot of time. So there is no question that farmers can play a big role and cows can be an important part of the solution of climate change. We're able to cultivate this plant now in a way that does allow for scale. And we're able to, in a very small geographic footprint, create a very high yield per acre of this plant such that we could feed all of the cows and cattle in the United States on a plot of land that is smaller than O'Hare Airport. Mm. That That's very tangible. That's within our reach. We can do this, and we will during this decade.
5: Now, Albert, you have made a large part of your brand of being a dairy farmer uh, that you're a good steward of the environment, that you care about these things. But do you think that other dairy farmers are going to get on board with giving their cows the seaweed powder?
4: So I think that farmers have not been been receiving the true cost of food that they're producing. So by doing these practices and showing the the public that they're a benefit, that they should be paying the true cost of what the cost for a gallon of milk or a, a cup of yogurt is something that economically farmers will benefit by doing the right practices and beneficial practices. And all these sustainability practices have a return on investment and have a positive cash flow for farms. Of the remaining farms in Sonoma County, San Francisco, 85% of them are certified organic. And so um, I feel very optimistic that we we can show the farmers the way and help them be sustainable in an answer to climate change
5: hmm Joan, I'd like to follow up with you. I mean, do you think that this is going to catch on? And I mean, do you think that some dairy farmers are going to need some convincing?
6: I think this is going to catch on. We're hearing from a lot of corporations and food companies who really want to play a role in reducing the greenhouse gas emissions within their supply chains. They want to be helpful to their farmers. So as long as there are farmers like Albert Who are using it on their farms and telling stories to their neighbors and to the associations they belong to and using their influence with farmers. And we're partnering with enlightened food companies who are very serious about reducing their impact on the climate. I'm pretty sure this is going to catch on.
5: Brianna, I want to give you my last question. What are the things that you would love to know about how asparagopsis works or what are the unanswered questions that you would love to find the answers to?
3: Yeah, there's lots to do. Uh, This is fairly new in in the world of research. And just to give a brief summary, you know, we've we've shown that it works to significantly reduce methane emissions. We've shown that it works on farm, which is very exciting. We've seen that it works for at least 21 weeks, almost half a year. We're getting there. Um, But there are some gaps. There are some unanswered questions that we should focus on. I think the first being is, I'd really like to see this application go through a full lactation cycle. Can we show that dairy cows eating this Paragopsis, can they reduce methane emissions throughout at least a full lactation cycle and beyond? The other gap that I think is very interesting is we do see in some studies an increase in feed efficiency. So whether that's through a reduced feed intake and a maintenance of either milk or meat products, or we're seeing, you know, on the flip side, a maintenance of feed intake with an increase in milk or meat production. Um, And we've seen that, you know, time and time again, and we need to see at larger scale. Is that also scalable? Um, And I think in terms of getting farmers on board, if we can show that asparagopsis can not only reduce methane emissions, but it also could increase the productivity of their farm. I think that is really is what may get farmers on board to want to use this and implement it. One of the issues we, we come across in agriculture is the profit margins can be pretty slim for some farmers. Um, and so how can we provide a product that is not only environmentally beneficial, but also financially
5: Dr. Brianna Roque is an animal science consultant at Blue Ocean Barns. She is based in Townsville, Queensland, Australia. Joan Selwyn is CEO of Blue Ocean Barns in Kailua-Kona, Hawaii. And Albert Strauss is founder and CEO of Strauss Family Creamery in Marshall, California. Thank you all for joining me today.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Kathleen. You.
0: And thanks to sci-fi producer Kathleen Davis for bringing us that moving story. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. One last thing before we go, celebrating our 30th anniversary this week, chatting with Charles Berquist, our director, who has been with the show almost as long as I have, 20-plus years, no, Charles?
4: Yeah, Witter of 97.
0: Wow, that is a long time. We have had a nomadic office experience of the past 30 years. Never staying in one place very long. For example, back in 1991, we started at WNYC
4: Radio in the Municipal Building in New York, a pretty cool place. Yeah, it's this old city tower down by the Brooklyn Bridge. Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia used to read the Sunday comics from the studios.
0: Exactly. We had tiny, cramped spaces, but it was fun to be in. And our studio is huge. We had a Steinway grand piano in it. But, but I digress. Let me move on. We spent quite some time renting office space from a diverse group of people, including the Sun Myung Moon folks, Sirius Satellite Radio. <laughs> yeah, I think Howard Stern took over our studio when we left. Actually, true. We had to leave because of Howard Stern. There was literally no room for us, but, but that's another story. Let me continue because perhaps the most challenging location was the back of a bridal shop in Midtown Manhattan
4: on the fifth floor above a pizza parlor. Remember that? I remember having to walk through their bridal gown cutting room to get to our office, yeah. Yeah, I do
0: remember navigating those gowns and the sewing machines. And I'm bringing all of this up as a lead into a very special moment on Sci-Fry, and it all begins with one of our office moves. It's a longish story, but worth it at the end. Here it is. Back in 1998, Steve Allen, the original host of The Tonight Show, a terrific comedian, songwriter, even created a fictional talk show called Meeting of the Minds that invited guests like Voltaire and Francis Bacon and Charles Darwin to chat. Well, Steve Allen came on Sci-Fi to talk about a book he wrote called Dumpf, which championed critical thinking. Now, I was a Steve Allen fanboy. I loved his comedy and would have used any excuse I could think of, like this book, to get him on the show. And much to my delight and surprise, he agreed. He even agreed to sit down at the Steinway in our studio and play his theme song, which he wrote, This Could Be the Start of Something Big. And he was very kind to me as I tried to act very professional in front of my idol while I was going gaga. And as I was saying goodbye, I made an offhanded remark about needing a theme song, because at that point, we didn't have our own theme
4: song. We used the same one as our partner's show, Talk of the Nation. But fast forward a couple of years, and we're going through one of those office moves you were talking about. So I'm trying to clean up that very small, cluttered office. There's books everywhere, piles of paper, boxes upon boxes of tapes. And up on top of a cabinet, I find one of those post office mail bins full of mail that hadn't been opened yet. Uh, somebody had just you know, tossed the box up on top of the cabinet to get it off, out of the way on the floor. So I start going through that mail and find an envelope from an office in Hollywood with a cassette tape inside. And it just says, theme song for Science Friday. Steve Allen. Yeah, that was a bubble pack envelope. I will never
0: forget. It sat unopened for, what, years. So I listened to the cassette, and it was a delightful little piano piece lasting about a minute. And as you say, with the name, Theme for Science Friday, written right on the cassette. Now, you just can't claim ownership of a piece of music and use it, even when one is given to you, without first clearing the intellectual copyright for it. And by this time, Steve Allen had passed away. So what do I do? I I searched around and found Steve Allen's company, still listed in Hollywood, and I got in contact with his son, who checked the ownership of the music and got back to me saying, Well, it has not been registered with ASCAP or BMI. It's yours. And here it is, the world premiere of Steve Allen's Science Friday theme. a very nice little piece, and I thank the late Steve Allen for it. But you know what? I'm still loving our current B.J. Liederman theme, and I think we'll stick with it. And that's about all the time we have for this week. If you missed any part of this program or you would like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. Or, of course, you can say hi to us on social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email us the old-fashioned way, sci at sciencefriday.com. Please do send us feedback. Tell us what you'd like us to cover. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato in New York. Hey there. I have some shocking news to share. This Monday, November 8th, Science Friday will celebrate 30 years. I know, I know. I must have started hosting this show when I was three years old, right? Well, all kidding aside, this show, our guests, our producers, and you, our listeners, have meant so much to me over the years. Together, we have discussed so much important news and had some really meaningful conversations, haven't we? And I'm grateful for all 1,500-plus broadcasts, 9,000 interviews, and nearly 200,000 minutes of airtime, even with the blips, hiccups, and flubbing everybody's name, including my own. My goal has always been to make science a conversation around the dinner table, to invite all of you to explore and share my curiosity and love of science. So thank you for joining me. And now I'm going to ask you to please join me in celebrating by making a donation to support Science Friday's legacy and to be a steward of our continued work. You can go to sciencefriday.com support to make your gift or just visit our website, Thank you for all the years, past, present, and future.